I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy not Mars Hill Graduate School, but Mars Hill Church, which may have in turn destroyed at least the name Mars Hill Graduate School. We'll talk about that later. Uh, I'm not really sure what I believe anymore, and I'm all right with that. I'm Dave. I'm a Bible theology nerd, a movie buff, and I am still an evangelical. Uh, apostate says what? Say what? Ah, what? You're an apostate. Got it. Finally, it's happened, Dave. <laughs> it has not happened. This is Veterans of Culture Wars. Totally counts. Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we have conversations all about evangelical Christianity. We welcome you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. And from the top of this episode, I thought I would mention uh, some news that has come out before we intro our guest. Um, it has come out in the past week, and the first time that I saw it on Twitter, it was being reported by Julie Royce, who is a voice out there that reports a lot on uh, Christian church or, or Christian organization abuses. Um, it was also covered by the Christian Post. And uh, I'll just read the headline of the Christian Post article that uh, was written by Leonardo Blair um, that came out Wednesday, September 21st, 2022. And the headline is, Founder of Grace College's Music Department, abused at least 100 boys over decades, whistleblowers allege. And I bring this up because I have mentioned on this podcast before, Veterans of Culture Wars, that this is my alma mater. I was at Grace College from 1998 to 2003. I, I did undergraduate work and a little bit of seminary there as well. Um, this was devastating to read and to hear um, because everything that I have described on this podcast before I have meant that I had a good experience at Grace College um, that I made a lot of lifelong friends there that I'm still in contact with and I did not hear a word about a music director who in the article goes on to say um, maybe abused not just 100 but maybe 200 and his own daughters have come forward to say it may be more young boys than that and so we're talking uh, sexual assault sexual harassment rape of boys at the school and also apparently at shopping malls around the country um, this particular professor was arrested in 1993 for kidnapping a 16 year old boy from a mall and raping him and that's how this stuff started to come out. And like I said, I didn't hear a word about this. I didn't know about this. And so there are serious questions that the leadership at that time, who knew about this and was it communicated to parents and prospective students? Uh, it doesn't appear that that was the case. Uh, so a, a lot of very, very serious questions, disturbing and just horrible allegations for uh, these victims out there. So very, very hard thing to read. Um, and we'll, we'll link to the article in the show notes. Um, 
because we we want the truth of this to come out as ugly uh, as it is. The reason why I bring up Grace College is not because only because of my own ties to it, but our guest tonight, um, and we had planned this before this article came out, and I don't mean to be completely depressing at the top of the show here, um, but we thought it was necessary to, again, get get this article and get the, the truth of this matter out. My guest is actually a good friend of mine who lives down the street from me, and he's a little bit younger than me. We, we discovered in the course of him moving his family here uh, later last year that he also attended Grace College, and our paths did not cross there. I'm older, um, but he went there. Um, he studies psychology, and now he teaches at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, formerly known as Mars Hill Graduate School, as Zach alluded to in the introduction. Um, he got a doctorate from Regent University. So Dr. Paul Horde is with us on the show. How are you doing? Doing Paul. all right. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, yeah. Zach. Sorry for the the heavy introduction, but you know, Zach and I figured we have to bring this to the light. Like, you know, this guy's daughters were incredibly courageous and brave to bring these stories forward, hopefully so the victims who want to be heard um, can potentially speak out and, and people can learn like the full truth of it. Um, but maybe we should start like um, I think you said before we started recording, you hadn't heard anything about this, but um, you, you went to Grace from what years and uh, what, what were your impressions of the school when you were there? Yeah, as I, I attended from 2004 um, all the way to 2010. So um, I graduated in their undergrad and then didn't know what I was doing. So I went ahead and got a master's degree. Um, and that's how I ended up as a therapist. Um, it was a master's in counseling. So um, like you, I mean, at the time I heard nothing about that. And I was actually, um, as I became a therapist, my um, my first job was working actually with um, perpetrators of sexual violence. Um, and that's sort of an area of my own expertise. But again, obviously at the time I had heard nothing about what's just come out. With um, working with people who have been... Um sexually violent um and that that kind of you know ties into this theme and the story a little bit um what are your what are your observations of this because these are these are crimes that there are a lot of repeat offenses we always hear about that people are are you know the there's a high probability that someone who is abusing kids in this way will, will just keep keep doing it um what are some of your experiences kind of working in this area, uh, working with these individuals? Um, what have you observed in your time doing this? Yeah, no, there's, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot in there um, to begin with one, um, one, I guess one side of what I've done in some ways has been um, might even fall under the umbrella of, of advocacy um, in trying to, um, people often hear that I work with sex offenders, and that becomes this label that gets placed on, on and pretty much everybody um, from that, that's broken any kind of um, any kind of law of a sexual nature. And the problem is that that ends up lumping absolutely everybody into the same same label. And so you have people like this professor who are repeat offenders, and we would call them kind of on the predatory side, kind of probably a little bit more sociopathic, though I don't know this person, um, all the way down to you know people accused of statutory rape which, um, or who had um, 
access child pornography, but hadn't done something maybe called hands-on offense. And the problem is there's a huge discrepancy between those kinds of individuals. And so when we use one term to lump everybody in there, typically most people go to the worst case scenario, which is they, they often think of the stereotyped person in a trench coat standing outside a playground, right? And we have this image. And the problem with that image is, is that in scapegoating a particular type of people, we actually then it, it furthers the ability of other predators to actually make use of that. Because then we think, well, I know what an, I know what an offender looks like. And, you know, this upstanding professor doesn't look like an offender. They're nice. They, they're put together. They don't seem like this sweaty, antisocial, aggressive weirdo on the side of a playground. So, of course, I'll trust them. And so actually it's in our in the quick knee jerk scapegoating that we often do. Um, that we create these fantasies of what these individuals are like, that we actually end up turning more blind eyes and have a harder time looking for the actual risks that exist in our neighborhood um, and for our kids. And I think a lot of people get real scared of, you know, when we teach our kids things like stranger danger and things like that, when the majority of offenses happen with people you know. And the majority um, of this guy's offenses were were more relational. It sounds like, you know, there's that, like him getting arrested had to do with, yes, kidnapping a child at the mall, which would be like that fits into our idea of the, mm -hmm. the this violent stranger. But but it was more, more common that it was like, uh, you know, youth music conferences that he was going to on the weekends and things and and finding finding uh, kids that he would be working with there and 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 you know, molesting them and stuff. And there's a guy that basically like admitted his affinity towards that, but like many do when they're caught, you know, downplayed what he'd actually done. But there's a phrase where he, he likened himself to a, a dentist that eats candy, um, which yeah. is, you know, it, it it's horrific in many ways to, to relate that to what he was actually doing. You know, like I, I would wager that like, 99% of dentists eat candy at some point. Candy is a normal thing <laughs> that exists and, and people eat it now and then, and you don't eat it constantly every day, but um, that's a lot different than, than preying on children. Um, it's so, a complete dismissal of the, the seriousness of that, of that sin or that crime. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, you know, we, we've, we've seen, you know, the Southern Baptist Coalition, the Catholic Church, we've seen these major scandals with with uh, predatory leaders being protected. And, and those were people preying on those that they had relationships with, um, not strangers. And, and, you know, this, these articles about this are saying that, you know, there was incidents that went on while he was a professor there and some faculty were aware of things but but chose not to file any reports or do anything about it and i'm just continually struck by it just seems that religious institutions are they just if i feel like they've hung a sign up saying predators welcome <laughs> like they're just great places if you want to abuse with impunity because so often we see, you know, when somebody does get caught, they admit to an affair or something like that. And then, no, the police don't get involved. They want to exercise Christian grace and forgiveness. And, you know, we've seen videos recently of congregation applauding as, as a pastor admits to a, a, a failure of, of morals briefly, uh, vaguely or whatever, you know, and it's just... 
it's so frustrating and I don't know how that changes, but, um, but it fits into, to, to what you're saying that like those sorts of environments, those relationships, somebody, you know, that's, that's the stuff that's far more common. Uh, this guy just dabbled in both, I guess. (laughs) And, and I mean, and that's also a factor when someone's been able to continue in this kind of behavior for years and years, um, there's an element of kind of continually pushing a limit that will also. Right. And so the more, the more they are given the pass, right. The more that they get that, I think they've used the term like the cheap forgiveness. Um, the more there, there is a tendency to just to continue. That's, that's taken as a, as actually um, that is kind of a pat on the back that that's okay. Um, it's, it's, and so it's in that sense that we're sort of not holding somebody accountable is actually approving of them, at least in the way that that, that, um, some of these individuals interpret that they interpret that. Um, I've heard people talk about that sort of like, you know, pushing the risk factor further and further as like, it's like they, they wanted to get caught. Is that so much true or, or psychologically speaking, is it usually more that they, they enjoy expressing their power through riskier um, activity? It's a little bit of both. Um, because actually, if you think about what you said there, um, it's it's kind of an idea of like, where's the where's the motivation coming from? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the fascinating things about power is that you don't really feel it until you use it or you threaten it. Mm. Um, so if you're if you're enjoying if you want to enjoy your power, which is a weird word to say, but um, that um, the way you the way you do it is you actually you put it at risk. You feel it. You feel mm. your power when you're exerting your power um, or when it's threatened. That's when that's when you have that sense of feeling. So the the do they like the risk? Um, a lot of people um, both like the they kind of get fetishized and get obsessed with the thing they're doing, but then they also like all that goes around into the riskiness of what they're doing. And it's actually the risk of getting caught is that that feeling that actually is kind of driving them a little bit. And so it is a pushing the limit, almost like in a teenage sort of way, where you're just going to keep pushing the limit. It doesn't matter where you draw the line, they're going to push a little bit more. Going all the way back to Freud, um, in where he posited the death drive in beyond the pleasure principle. You know, we, we're it seems pretty intuitive that we're driven by pleasure. We like things that are pleasurable. We go after them. Um, in beyond the pleasure principle, Freud actually kind of recognized that there's something that seems to, to actually push past that, where we do things that are actually un- displeasurable for us, and kind of began to question why. Um, and so one of the theorists after him kind of was was playing with this and distinguished between uh, pleasure and enjoyment to say pleasure. Pleasure is like an exhale. Pleasure is when you finally get what you think you want. Mm. And there's actually a, um, it's a diminution, diminution. I can send that word right. Anyway, there's a lessening of the excitement. Ugh, I got it. Right. But there, you actually are more excited and the energy increases and there's almost more vitality in life when you're almost getting something, but you don't quite have it. Right. Right. Mm. Like when you're playing the game, it's super fun and you're lost in it and it's exciting and the adrenaline is pumping. Once you win, right? Yay, I won. Okay, what do you guys want to do now? Right? And I mean, you see this after every, um, you know, on TV after every um, sports victory, right? The, the, you know, they say, how does that feel? What's it like? What's your plan for next season? Right? We have to keep it moving on because as soon as you have it, it's almost worthless now. It's sort of a momentary thing. And so there's this distinction between what do we enjoy and what are we and where do we get pleasure from? And actually, we're motivated by our attempts to enjoy. And so we keep so if I keep pushing a limit, then I'm continuing to enjoy because it's not about actually getting the thing I think I want. It's about feeling like I'm getting closer. Uh, yeah, Which is I know, I, that might be getting too weird, but <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I get it. 
No, it, it, it's fascinating when you start seeing this, like, I mean, in, in our lives, and I think it's every, it's in everything from like the mundane way we structure little goals for ourselves or the ways we like think about what we're doing all the way to like the grand on kind of on politics um, to the like understanding pathology and some of the some of the these really maladaptive behaviors, aggressive, horrible, abusive behaviors that people do. There's an interesting way that we we stop ourselves from actually achieving our goals. And there's a part of us that loves that. <laughs> and it's really yeah. strange. Let's circle back around and talk about the idea of cheap forgiveness that that you brought up, because I, I think this is a part of the equation in organizations, churches or whatever, that allow and cover up people who are doing these monstrous things to kids or whoever else within their organizations. And, you know, for, for us as Christians, like Jesus told us to forgive 77 times seven, right? I mean, that's the perfect number. Always forgive people. But I think people see that as, you know, when we're talking about heinous crimes, when we're talking about a rape or, you know, heaven forbid, child sexual abuse, which which was happening here with this guy, underage sexual abuse, these horrible crimes that, that produce trauma and just destroy victims often. And there are organizations that sometimes will try and force people to like go into a room with this person who did this to them and say, okay, say, I forgive you, you know, like you have to release them from their crimes. And, and then it becomes this cheap forgiveness because I think like you were alluding to the person is often not held accountable. You know, it's covered up. They're saying, Oh, you know, we're, we're giving grace and, and grace is, you know, a wonderful thing to give. We're not, we're not against that, but we're giving grace and we're going to let this guy who did these things back into his position where he could potentially do it again to future victims. And so it's, I think there's a confusion of what forgiveness should look like. I can forgive somebody and not want to see them ever again in my life. You know, I could work through a process basically for me. So I'm not, you know, dealing with personal trauma or my own like, bitterness or unhappy like i could work through that in therapy and and forgive like in that way without seeing somebody again but there is kind of this you know every single sin is the same and can be forgiven but every single sin is not the same some sins have more horrendous consequences than than other ones right there's a lot i think <laughs> to wrap in there right. i mean the um because well on a on a like a perhaps kind of the cynical side um, is to is to acknowledge that like cheap forgiveness is often given to white men in power, right? Mm -hmm. That those are typically the ones that we're going to give the cheap forgiveness to. Whereas, uh, marginalized individuals of marginalized identities are going to be the scapegoated ones. Um, and and you see, you kind of go, well, where's the where, where's that forgiveness when we're talking about marginalized individuals? When we're talking about immigrants? When we're talking about people who identify anywhere separate from kind of the the straight white uh, evangelical model, right? And mm -hmm. even in your your example, it's a, it's to put them back into their position. And so it's typically reserved for people in positions of power. And so it, when you look at that from a kind of more of a systems perspective, you start seeing, oh, this is the system protecting itself. The system is not, this isn't just about the person and it's not just about the victim. It's actually about the system not having to face the fact that not only did this person do something horrific, but they did it within a system that allowed them and facilitated that. And this probably isn't the only time that's happened. And so the system is also doing its own like protective aspect to it. Now, I can't say for certain, you know, in any one situation, um, but in general, that's also always a question to ask. So is, 
as a therapist, um, you often get somebody coming to therapy, and I, I see a lot of teens, so I get a lot of teenagers kind of dragged before me, kicking and screaming by parents and who are telling me, you know, that their 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 young person has, you know, done whatever, is failing at school, is um, is doing pot, is drinking, is whatever. Um, go ahead and fix them. And it's amazing how often um, the solution in quotes, has very little to do with the actual pathology of the individual that's talking to me. That there's an entire system at work, and they're the only ones who, in a sense, they're drinking or they're acting out is trying to say, our family's messed up, mm -hmm. and is a way of saying, the entire way this is being, our family is run doesn't work, and they're the only ones actually telling the truth about the family in their maladaptive behavior. Now, that analogy breaks down a little bit when, when we start kind of broadening that out except to say that we always need to also look at the context in which something's happening as well as the individuals involved and so often when that cheap forgiveness is given the victim is somebody who has less social power has less of a position and so is somebody that systemically we would rather be quiet typically it's somebody who's who's marginalized um, in some of their identities and the person we're protecting or trying to give more forgiveness to is somebody who's in power and if we really did hold them accountable there'd be a lot more questions asked but putting all that aside for a second, <laughs> uh, to then talk about like forgiveness itself, right? I think uh, I like the phrase cheap forgiveness because it's it's a way of acknowledging that forgiveness um, is often characterized in that lens as a pretend, let's pretend it didn't happen. As this like, let's go back, let's undo time. Let's go back and pretend it never happened. We'll just, we'll never talk about that again. Right. And you can't do that. And I don't think that's what forgiveness really is. I don't think forgiveness is a form of dissociating. It's not a form of pretending and just cutting something out of your life. It's actually about of acknowledging the full truth of what happened and then saying, what does it look like to move forward given the full reality, given the, the extent of the trauma at work here that's gonna continue to play out. And I think for full forgiveness to happen, you the you want to be in a position where the offender themselves is also working to become a safe person again. Yeah. And for them to do that part of their treatment, part of them becoming a safer person is taking is beginning to acknowledge and feel in themselves the impact of what they've done them facing. And this is a weird way to talk about trauma, but the trauma of being the perpetrator. And by that, the, the aspect of perpetration that I don't know how to tell a story about myself that involves me as an abuser that part of perpetration of being able to say, how do I, how do I weave that into my story of me? Because otherwise I'm spending the rest of my life finding ways to avoid that typically at the expense of somebody else. Yeah. And here you're saying, yeah, it's not at all like you're dismissing the victim's pain or trauma. Not at all. Like that's, that's serious. We need to address that, but it's trying to get somebody to a place where they can recognize, you know, in a way, even the empathy of like what their actions did to another life and and work from there to to change i think of like a simple view of how forgiveness works for evangelicals would be i mean parents do this all the time but it was you know like put in a in the through the lens of, of our faith but growing up you know if if my brother or sister and I hurt each other or whatever, my mom would bring us together and we'd have to both hug and say, I will be kind to you. And then we could just like turn around and walk away and it's done. And there's no like real acknowledgement of what needs to change. And there's no uh, option for the one who's been hurt to 
set boundaries going forward. Um, you know, I, I, I think when, when, when a leader has hurt people, I, I think of, you know, Mark Driscoll, uh, the, 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 the board that was putting him through, you know, a, a, a suspension process and all that fully intended to bring him back to the pulpit. It was a, like from the outset, it was a restoration process, not, not a let's work through this and figure out how to like not be an abusive asshole um, in the way that you've like built your entire career on, on being like this, but it was a restoration process, like from the outset. Oh yeah. He's going to be back. And they said, they said since then, like, yeah, we never intended to, to have him leave. We fully expected to bring him back. He quit and that's why he's gone. But if he hadn't quit, he'd still be there. And so there's this, there's this already sort of baked in understanding that, well, the forgiveness is ob uh, obligatory. Uh, it's, it's just, it has to exist because of Christians. So if, if the aggrieved party doesn't want to forgive, that's on them, but he is forgiven and uh, he just needs to, to go through this little, this little plan. And then he gets back to doing what he was doing before. no, no need to say anything about what is changing going forward or even if if he is somebody that should be a pastor at all i mean the now forgiveness. nowadays that's, that's i don't think i should be obligated to forgive people <laughs> like i i i don't think that that is a requirement in life and and you know christians can say it's in the bible so you have to do it but i think sometimes uh people hurt you so bad that part of drawing healthy boundaries is saying, I have nothing to do with this person ever again. They hurt me really bad, and I'm not forgiving them for that. They they just have to deal with what they did. They have to feel the pain that they that they gave me, and that's on them, not on me. I just, and I don't. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular right now, but I don't. I don't feel that I am obligated to forgive people in every instance. Uh, in order to be a, a good and moral person. No, I think, I mean, your word obligated, I think is significant there because I think you can't obligate somebody to forgive. If you're yeah. obligated to forgive, then you're not really forgiving. Yes. Right. Then it's not, it's not, this isn't, this isn't forgiveness. This is about something else. This is once again, I think this is what we see so often with this being institutionalized or put in um, is the victim once again, bearing something for the perpetrator. Uh, the once again, the victim has to go the extra mile, do something else to make the perpetrator feel better, um, to make the system feel better. And I think in that case, that's not forgiveness. That's revictimization is what you're doing. Yeah. Um, you are, you're once again, putting them back in that situation and that's not forgiveness. Yeah. It, it, it feels like it's, 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 yeah, it, it's, it's an emphasis on, on haste on, Okay, once we've established forgiveness is granted, then we can move on. And and I think, you know, somebody somebody who's been hurt, who's been traumatized, uh, maybe they have grief to work through. Uh, you know, I say through as if that ends, but you know, it doesn't doesn't necessarily, as we've we've discussed on here. Um, but grief and trauma, and I think, you know, I think forgiveness can be something that a door is left open to that that's that somebody who has been hurt can be 
reevaluating and thinking about that and and get to a place of forgiveness at some point. Um, but the idea that just saying the words, I forgive you, means that anything truly is happening uh, in their heart. They may not be even capable of fully grasping what they are forgiving until well, they've think, worked through it. And, that, and that's, I think, a really key key point right there, that when we jump to forgive, as um, now speaking for like working with people who are um, the kind of survivors or victims of this kind of abuse, the, the move to quickly forgive is often a defensive move to not acknowledge the, the extent of the damage that they've experienced. Right. Um, which in the moment, right off right after something's happened, of course you've got whatever you're doing in order to survive through this. When somebody's been through somebody something traumatic, we have all sorts of very helpful, and I use the word defensive, but they're actually really important, uh, ways of coping. Um, however, you can't, until you know what you're forgiving, you can't forgive it. Until yes. you've been through the depths of like and acknowledged and begun to 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 work through, and I, you know, even just acknowledging the the extent of of the pain, and the trauma, you you're not it's not forgiving because you, you you don't even know what it is you're forgiving. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's actually working to pretend it didn't happen. It's working to 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 avoid. Uh, Which is not situation. true forgiveness. Which isn't forgiveness now. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. not truly forgiveness. That's 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 huge. That's 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 really valuable insight there well we've um we've had a heavy start here to the episode um you know necessarily talking obviously about very important things but um uh, we should maybe backtrack because i imagine some of our audience is wanting to know more about who you are uh dr paul horde and maybe your story with evangelical christianity and your journey with it over the course of your life to where you're at now so um do you want to share your experiences with with the faith yeah yeah sure um so um, I was raised in an uh, evangelical Christian family. I was actually raised overseas. My dad's business had sent him to um, now called, they're asking to be called Turkey, not Turkey. Um, so the country normally, form, formerly known as Turkey, uh, now called Turkey. And so I spent most of my life growing up there. I was involved in a church there um, and sort of broadly evangelical. It wasn't per particular denomination. I think it was called the International Protestant Church. Um, so I didn't, I guess somebody put it, I didn't grow up with the luxury of denominations. <laughs> um, I don't know if you want to call it a luxury, but you know, whatever. Um, and then, so then I went to Grace College because um, didn't really know what else to do. And um, with my math, after graduating from there, I got a master's in counseling. And so I've been a licensed therapist um, ever since, since about 2012. Um, and yeah, have I'd say since then have remained um, within within the church. I still identify um, as a Christian, though. Recently, I think I've been playing with the with the kind of double negative of I'm not not a Christian uh, would probably be the best way to describe it. Um, so, Interesting. Um, I'm happy to talk more about that, but that's probably me being more <laughs> sure. Than that, actually, that's... like finding a quick identity. We've never had uh, anybody say that, so yeah, if you could go into that, that'd be great. Uh, sure, sure. Um, I'll finish the story a little bit. So I, I spent some time in Indiana working with, um, like I said, individuals with histories of sexually abusive behavior, um, and kind of otherwise practicing. Got my PhD while I was in. Um, I'd moved to Turkey where I taught English, and I was interested in actually academia in Turkey for a while, because. Um, bilingual i've done therapy in turkey in turkish um so i was sort of interested in being involved in the um, counseling community there but there are a few things that happened there that um 
made it felt like it was wiser to come back. One of them being a coup attempt in 2016 that kind of made things a little bit, um, just a little bit more unstable in the country in general. And so we um, ended up getting my first academic appointment as a professor in Kansas in, uh, I was in 2018. Um, and so then just last year, I started at the Seattle School, which is sort of a dream job for me. I was really excited to come out west um, and be here. So now I'm at the Seattle School. Um, so I've got a small private practice. I do quite a bit of postgrad supervision. So people who have their master's degrees um, and are working towards independent licensure as therapists, I, I help them with that and then see a small caseload and do some teaching. And are your clients generally uh, evangelicals? Uh, are there folk? Are there? Are you dealing with religious trauma, folks? Um, yeah, um, I mean, I mean, because yeah. you know, the 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 school is is religiously affiliated. So, um, yeah, I would say um, my clients are pretty diverse um, in terms of like their own faith backgrounds and kind of where they're at. I mean, um, I've worked with a lot of in, with a lot of individuals. Honestly, with a lot of sexual um, issues, so a lot of them coming from various levels of, of perpetration or kind of um, behaviors that were otherwise, we'll say, problematic. Leave it there. Um, but n most of my work has not been with, um, I would say, the evangelical community mm. um, predominantly. Um, I know a lot of people I work with specialize in sort of spiritual trauma and spiritual abuse or things like that. Um, I'd say I've been adjacent to that quite a bit, but that's never been... I'd say my personal area of interest. Um, I think I found myself really drawn towards working with perpetrators uh, when I was getting my master's degree. And I think ever since then, I've always felt sort of a, um, a desire to sort of to understand. And I've always felt my work um, sort of fell under the umbrella of, um, of prevention, that working with perpetrators was actually about preventing further abuse by helping them. Are, are you, so you haven't been in in the seattle area for long uh i guess I'm, I'm wondering if if your local colleagues have have painted a picture of any of the sort of trends uh of the sorts of of if there's been waves of particular types of 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 patients and things that are particular to this area that I, I, I'm just thinking, you know, from my perspective, if you were dealing with a religious trauma and all that, everybody, you know, after Mars Hill collapse was saying this is going to create then a need for a massive amount of qualified therapists in the Seattle area for many years to come. Um, but, uh, I, I imagine that different parts of the country, different parts of the world have, have different, uh, needs that are more prevalent than others in in folks seeking help I'm, I'm wondering if there's something particular to this area that drew you or particular to this area that's just interesting that you've found since coming here yeah i don't know that i can speak to like broad generally kind of what are the mental health issues in this area versus other parts of the country i think given everything the country's been through over the past 10 years um like no idea what you're talking what's the about. trauma that's, that's upsetting you i <laughs> yeah. mean there's so many things um, that mental health across the the country is is a huge issue and um i think there, there's a lot around that that's really important i love the i love that mental health is something people are talking about more um, but at the same time i think it's also important that we begin to be cautious about how we talk about it because uh, there's ways to talk about it that can cause a lot more problems too so there's um 
I'm glad that there's more attention being drawn to it, but yeah, I don't know that I can say too much about particular to this area um, as far as like the kinds of patients that um, and kinds of issues that people are dealing with. I think it's probably a little bit more localized to what's the, the kind of subpopulation that people are getting their referrals from. So there are definitely pockets where um, a lot of colleagues of mine do work with, like I said, spiritual trauma or with um, kind of people, a lot of people dealing with anxiety um, post pandemic and then given everything else going on in the world. The school I work at seems to, um, a, a portion of the students seem to be drawn to our school out of um, kind of a having, being a part of their, I call it, broadly call it their deconstructive journey, kind of moving out of spiritual and religious circles, but something about it is keeping them some, somewhat questioning. Um, and so there's some, there tends to be a lot of sort of ex-evangelical, um, seems to be part of the culture of at least where I work. Mm-hmm. There's there's a ton of work with spiritual abuse and things like that, certainly in this area with what's happened. But like you said, I think that's, you know, all over the country as well. Um, you mentioned there, I wanted um, to dive into kind of how Christians interact with and view psychology, because that's that's kind of an interesting story. And I don't know, there probably is some podcast out there somewhere that probably deals with how Christians have thought about psychology over over the decades and the different um, disputes and debates within the evangelical camp related to psychology um, and how that has played a role in, in spiritual abuse in many ways because of a, a misunderstanding of the discipline and kind of a, a not grasping the reality that people have chemicals in their brain that sometimes they don't control and have no choice over that that leads them to feel certain things or, or have anxiety or, or, or things happen. Um, specifically, there's a whole branch of counseling out of evangelical Christianity called Nuthetic Counseling. I think I said that right. And I went to a church like way back in the past that was into this. And I was more conservative at that time and didn't have maybe the tools to kind of see what was going on. Like it all sounded okay to me, like as a Christian. Um, but this, this kind of counseling was founded by Dr. Jay Adams. There have been other individuals involved in it. He wrote up a 1970 book called Competent Counsel, Introduction to Nathetic Counseling, and he called this biblical counseling. And, you know, to me, like every time someone says like biblical in front of something, it's almost a conversational stopper, right? Because it's kind of like, this is the way to do things. But oftentimes it's not. And oftentimes it causes a lot of damage. And I'm sure there's probably nuances with nuthetic counseling, but um, in my reading of it, 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 it seems to allude to that a therapist or a psychologist it has, has a client in front of them, and this therapist is going to go sin hunting. Like if someone is experiencing anxiety, they're going to like lift up all the stones of this person's life to find out where they're not appropriately trusting God and then try to bring them to repentance for this sin of anxiety from their perspective. But like from my point of view, and I think most sane people's points of view, anxiety is something that sometimes it's just a chemical imbalance in someone's brain. It, it has nothing to do with whether they have enough faith or they're not trusting God in a certain way. So it seems like it's just more of a simplistic way to look at psychology and kind of getting the Bible to do something that maybe the Bible is not built 
to do. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Have you interacted at all with new Thetic counseling and, and what are your thoughts on that approach? Yeah, I'd say I've been adjacent to it at times. I've never been trained in it, never really studied it. It's never been something I've practiced. Um, so um, in schools that identify as sort of faith-based, but also teach some form of psychology or counseling, um, there's a lot of them right now. They're very popular in evangelical circles these days. Um, but they tend to talk about like the different um, different approaches to integration is what they'll call it. Um, and they kind of, I forget all the names for them, but they kind of have like five different ways of integrating your your faith and counseling as if these are these two kind of monsters that don't like each other and you've got to find a way to make them play nice to each other. And then they go all the way from like, faith always tells you everything about your psychology. And so anything you learn about psychology always has to go through whatever lens you think your faith says to the other way around where your faith is always dominated by your psychology and anything you think about faith-wise always has to make sense to whatever uh, theory of mind and personality you, you're ascribing to. And so, you know, you can kind of think of the spectrum then. Um, they, they were real popular for a while. They had these sort of like five books, like, like five different approaches to, or five different ways of. Um, and so that's kind of where a lot of schools fall on this. And biblical counseling would be sort of on, on the far end of like those who are going to take a very particular um, way of approaching the Bible. And then they're going to use that as kind of a foundational thing from which they're going to, um, from my perspective, sort of pick the, the things from, of counseling and psychology research that sort of fit that worldview and then apply those there. Um, but everything's going to go through sort of a lens of like, we find this approach of understanding the Bible and this way of thinking about people and this way of thinking about pathology. And we're going to do that. Um, I don't practice it for a reason because I don't think it's great. Um, but I'm also don't want to just create a straw man of something that I, I haven't personally studied a whole lot. Um, I think what's an interesting on that is kind of the, even just the history of of religion um, and particularly Christianity in the U.S. and um, and psychology, kind of going all the way back to Freud um, and everything that was happening around the early 1900s when it came to science. And Freud was trying to get psychoanalysis and psychology and psychoanalytic theory taken seriously as a science. Um, and so he was tying it into Darwin. He was tying it into evolution. He was trying to kind of tie it into kind of a little bit of a bio biologizing quite a bit of it really worked hard to get it taken seriously within the scientific community. Um, everything I just said at that time, if you would like to think about that time, this is Scope's monkey trial. This is sort of with the fun, fun, fundamentalist. Yeah, we're going to bleep out. those words. That they, they, I heard <laughs> okay, of Darwin. I heard I of was evolution. I was <laughs> uh, is. We may have to just cut this entire segment. I mean, this is I mean, incredibly offensive. I mean. <laughs> and, I mean, and on top of that, Freud was obsessed with, you know, penises and... You know, all of that whoa, fun whoa. stuff. I mean, he had his oral and anal and um, genital stages, all of those fun things. So, all right, let me go get my fan. I, I'm just, <laughs> I'm gonna faint. <laughs> Here we go. So Getting the vapors. <laughs> but um, um, so I mean, so starting from back then, this stream of I think we're you know, the history of evangelicalism goes all the way back and sees Freud and psychology as this evil. And so what I think Jay Adams was doing in the 70s was in some ways like somewhat revolutionary and trying to say, actually, maybe there is something that there is a there is a relationship that can even happen here, as opposed to this sort of disgust induced, like we can't have anything to do with them. Now, I think I don't agree with a lot of his ways of doing it. I don't agree with the, the approach he took towards it. Um, and there's a lot more nuance to that. But I think that's some of what like the inheritance that the evangelical church has of this sort of like skepticism mm -hmm. all the way going back to like modernity and science and all of that yeah what if i can there was one other thing he said um that i think is really 
I like to say this to my students when we're talking about like different theories of pathology and like what are symptoms and like what is anxiety, where does it come from, what's happening, right? Um, is that if you, if you think about, it, we often want to have an idea of like, well, people come to a therapist and they want to say, why am I feeling this way, right? Why am I depressed? Why am I anxious? And if you just sit for a second, if you ask somebody that and they said, oh well, it's because of, it doesn't really matter what they answer, what they finish that sentence with that's going to feel reductive and diminishing. Mm -hmm. If someone tells you the reason, the reason you're feeling something, they aren't answering the question. Something, something else is at play there. And I think what's so fascinating is, is that as clients, we often think that's what we want. I want someone to tell me what, why I'm feeling this. And as therapists, we think, oh, my job is to like, I'm gonna explain why their, where their anxiety comes from. But if we actually play that out, nobody walks away from that interaction feeling like they had a human connection. Well, and you mentioned spiritual abuse going back, and I, I think with, again, granted, the different nuances and maybe complicated expressions of how this counseling is put into place. But I think a lot of it, and I, I do think this was practiced at Mars Hill Church under Mark Driscoll, it becomes spiritual abuse because, yeah, a counselor is going to, t exactly what you just said, they're going to tell you that there's some sin, there's some way that you're not trusting God, and this is why you're anxious or depressed. Because as a person, you should be happy. Like, you know, you know Jesus, you have the gospel, you should be happy. And so there's no room for somebody like just being themselves, being real and, and going through really hard things in life and processing trauma. Like it all just gets piled on with shame because, um, you know, it, there's got to be some sin somewhere that uh, and that's the reason why somebody is feeling this way. And I, I believe uh, for the most part that the counseling at Mars Hill, like many other churches, um, it was, you know, they had counselors, not therapists. They had people that did not go to school for it and get a degree. Like, I don't, I don't know what amount of training is even required to be a newthetic counselor, but they are very specifically saying counselor, not therapist. Um, and I, I, I think that changed along the way at some point at, at Mars Hill. I think the guy that was in charge of the counseling department there, Bent Meyer, who actually I ran into him recently, like he, he like went to school and and got a degree and and changed his approach to how Marcel was doing counseling. I always um, heard positive things about him too. Yeah, to be yeah to be fair. Yeah, but that 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 does it brings up another thing about like some of the things to be aware of when seeking therapy slash counseling via a church a large percentage of the time these people are not truly trained for what they're doing right there's a whole um so <laughs> it depends on what the, on i guess under the, the terminology matters and what, what's their license right so i am mm -hmm. i'm licensed by the state of washington as a licensed mental health counselor okay and that that means that there's a certain level of qualification that I have, be that education and experience and supervision that I have undergone 
which indicates a certain type of, and also an adherence to a certain ethical code that I follow. And there's some base minimum practice standards that I have to follow because I am an LMHC in the state of Washington. Um, pastoral counseling is a whole other thing. Mm. And a lot of churches would use sort of pastoral counseling as, um, as as something else to that wasn't that didn't, didn't fall under all of the ethics codes and kind of supervisory oversight of a state board that um, that a licensed counselor or therapist marriage and family therapist I mean it gets really confusing because it's very confusing level, you can be a clin clinical social worker you can be a marriage and family therapist you can be a mental health counselor um, those are some of the three big masters level ones but every state then calls them something different and they have different um, initials after it so at one point, I was an LMHC, LCPC, and an LPC, all with the same degree training and everything, uh, just be because I was licensed in at the time in Indiana, Missouri, and Kansas. Um, and so it just kind of gets ridiculous. And the ridiculousness then, I think, plays out in part of the brokenness of our mental health system right now of like what you just said, how hard it is to find help, right? We, we're in a... We're in a and we're in an epidemic right now, we're in a, <laughs> this pandemic going on, um, and then we have this mental health crisis happening, and people can't find therapists. Um, and most therapists are booked up, and then there's just this huge Not issue covered about, by insurance? Is it? Yeah, I mean, insurance then becomes thing. this whole yeah. other nightmare. It's a fascinating article. That's a article. huge deal. And the title of it, I think, says everything. Um, it's called The McDonaldization of Psychotherapy, uh, which I oh. thought was a fascinating look at... Um, and just depressing look at the impact of managed care on therapy and what what happens and at the same time the, the importance of managed care in order to give access to people to therapy but at the same time the the impact of the way we have that whole system and the way we do medicine in this country has this follow-on effect of even what kind of therapy people are able to do i could go on for a while here because we're talking about pastoral counseling for a second all that to say yeah it's worth looking in the credentials like a therapist is required to show you their license is required to have that posted somewhere is required to talk about their credentials is required to talk about their approach to therapy um, pastoral counseling is a much looser um, practice as far as i know i'm not a pastoral counselor so i also want to be careful <laughs> as far as like, yeah well but... most pastors that i talk to with any mental health issue you know these are smaller church pastors, they would, they would absolutely do a referral to a licensed therapist if they were talking to somebody and, you know, seeing things that should be dealt with by a licensed therapist and not, you know, a pastor who's trained to exegete the Bible and maybe speak and kind of do administrative stuff around the church, but certainly not with the complexity of somebody's brain and mind and, and, you know, what might be going on. Um, Pastoral counseling also, I believe, there is no expectation of privacy. HIPAA laws do not apply to to those sessions. And so we hear about, uh, you know, churches using information they hear in pastoral counseling sessions um, in later instances of. Uh, uh, hopefully not uh, for sermon illustrations, right? <laughs> yeah, but hopefully not for that, scenario. but, you know, church discipline or whatever. Um, right. They'll pull out your file from your counseling sessions so uh yeah uh, yuck that's that's really <laughs> ugly if that happens it, yeah um, i mean you know we're all free around... but it's maybe not worth it even at that price <laughs> yeah and we're all around the issue of this isn't just the evangelical church i think as as paul was saying this is a, a wider cultural issue it's just that we, we don't take mental health seriously 
and that's reflected even as you were saying, Zach, with the the lack of insurance coverage and people having a nightmare that, that want to talk to a counselor and then trying to figure out if their insurance is in network with a different licensed therapist or not. And by not taking this seriously, um, we have so many people who are just broken or going through trauma and just literally trying to live their lives dealing with these huge, huge burdens that they, they don't know what to do with. And, and they don't, you know, they don't feel like they have an outlet that they can, they can figure things out. And that's just really, really sad. And I think there's especially among men, you know, we are, we are raised in America to be like, be your own man and suck it up, kid. You know, we were talking to Tori Williams Douglas a little bit about this. Um, you're supposed to bury your feelings deep down inside rather than be honest about how you feel. And sometimes at church, we can feel like we're supposed to put on a show, like everything's okay. And we have a perfect family rather than being real and being honest and authentic about about what's going on and, and where things are at. Um, do you see that too, Paul, with just, I mean, the, the devastation and destruction of just American society continually not taking mental health seriously? Yeah. And I think, I mean, it speaks a little to what I was saying before that I think in the past five years, you see that like, let's talk about mental health becoming a more common thing that people are actually like uh, discussing. And so I think I see a little bit of movement, but again, that's probably also depending on where you are. You hear that more in, in cities and less in rural areas or more conservative areas. Um, but at the same time, there's a like, how do we think about mental health? That's another really important aspect of it. Um, I think um, I was guess. Yeah, all that to say, <laughs> there's a couple of ways I can go there, but um, all that to say, yeah, that that I agree. There's a lot. There's so much we don't understand about mental health. And I think even right now, there's sort of a like, well, then send them to therapy, right? As if there's this like, that's this like, blanket way to treat everything. Um, and it's essentially like throwing ibuprofen at everything in an ER, right? Like, maybe we'll stop some of the pain, but that doesn't mean we're dealing with any of the underlying issues, or we're actually healing anyone. Um, that is a real problem for like, I mean, therapies and we're new, we don't, we're still figuring out what on earth we're doing and what's happening. And um, there's so much about even just the technology of therapy that it's a weird word, to, weird way to talk about it. But as a technology, we don't totally understand what it is we're doing. We've sort of figured out that the relationship matters. And so we're trying to foster this relationship. But at the same time, we're also currently most most therapists are playing kind of some version of whack-a-mole with various symptoms um, as if and to kind of put this into the a, a metaphor for kind of uh, the medical model like imagine if our approach to COVID was just getting rid of symptoms, like what that would have done to the pandemic. If that was if our only way to know if somebody had COVID was whether or not they had the, you know, what the original 10 symptoms that the CDC put out, um, then, I mean, just imagine where we'd be if we didn't have an idea of what a virus was, <laughs> um, you know, yeah, we're, and, and, we're getting all the resources of the government together to mass produce cough drops. Exactly. Like <laughs> then we're clearing out nasal passages and we're working really hard to bring taste back to tongues. That's what we're going to do. We're going to make you smell yeah. better. But missing the whole point of how many people walked around asymptomatic and also had the virus and spread the virus. And so, you know, two people had the same virus, but then it affected them completely differently. The symptom is only is, is an expression of something else that's going on. Um, and we don't in mental health, we don't have a con there's not a consistent understanding 
of but you know like the viral view of um of what's happening whereas we just look at are they anxious or are they depressed are they acting out i feel like uh like you you were saying the last you know five ten years or whatever there's been a lot more talk about um destigmatizing mental health the importance of it uh so i i think i kind of disagree somewhat with with dave when you say that our country doesn't take mental health seriously but i think it's a it's a complex issue of of one it being deemed acceptable but two it being accessible and i think more and more people are talking about it like we're understanding yeah like our mental health is important and we should be trying to take care of ourselves on that level but there's there's only so many therapists to go around there's only so many uh hours in the day where you could do it like like being able to take time off work to see a therapist during like the normal sort of work hours that a therapist works. Can all the therapists in the country work evenings and have everybody work nine to five and then see their therapist in the evening? Like it's, it's tough to make that work. And um, we've seen, I mean, we're a podcast. I listen to podcasts. I imagine you both listen to podcasts and you have heard commercials for various like therapy by app. Um, better help, better help, things like that. Um, this, this is a new approach to, to dealing with the problem of access and there being enough therapists to go around. I'm not sure what it's like using those, but I'm wondering if you have a sense of, if you feel positive about that being a way that we can help, um, have there be enough to go around access wise and 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 if they're really helping people yeah um probably too many thoughts um what i'd say i imagine some of them are like you're not actually talking with a real person it's like therapy by ai essentially there there are some that are doing that and those can be some of those are are better than others um the thing it gets it kind of gets into like again I mean, mental health issues are as broad, if not more broad than medical issues, right? Like what you need to see a doctor for if you, you know, if your arm is falling off is really different than when you see if you have cancer than what it needs if, to see a doctor. If you've got that weird mole on your back and you're kind of worried about it, right? Like they're totally, they're different ways that you're going to need help. So there's some things that like are emergency services. There's somebody who is down, who is feeling suicidal, who's feeling like um, I, I need some help right now. Um, and I think having ways like you know like a hotline that people can call and other access that they can get in the moment is really really important um the problem is when that gets substituted right when 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 you have a country where we have nothing but emergency services and we don't have any preventative thing or any ongoing care right it actually increases the cost of those emergency services because now more and more people are using them because there isn't more of this supportive ongoing uh, preventative care and i think there's a lot of that that happens in mental health where someone goes to therapy you know and suddenly they're getting attention they're getting empathic connection with somebody someone's listening to them something's helping them name their feelings yeah in six sessions you'll feel better you 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 will feel better and in three months after that you'll feel bad again because all you've done is go you've had some of those immediate issues addressed and you've you've been able to silence them Um, so you found a way to cope and then you have this bad habit that people then leave and it's, I don't blame them because the entire system is geared for that, right? Like you said, if I'm taking a week, an hour, you know, typically therapy happens an hour a week, um, an hour out of my day. Um, that's both the cost of the therapy, even if I have insurance. Um, most insurance companies, it goes into even my deductible so that 
I'm still paying for it. Um, and it's time both driving there and back or logging out of work and just logging online. It's a cost. There's a lot to it. And there's pressure from both your insurance company and on the therapist side from the insurance company to get you in and get you done and get it over with. So there's this pressure all around to reduce the symptom, make them okay, not really necessarily deal with what's going on. And so a long-term preventative approach is tends to then be reserved for the privileged, for those who can afford to take an hour out of work a couple times a week or can afford to go pay for hundred plus dollar therapy sessions every week. And if you think about how many people in their disposable income can afford 500 plus dollars a month for their therapy. Yeah. Um, I think it would be great if more people could. And when people can't, then how many therapists are going to have master's degree, master's degree bills for their education on top of having to pay for their own supervision. So their education prices are really high and they're making less than people than, than they could have made had they gotten a job right out of their undergrad. And so they're also now often the ones taking the brunt or taking very low fee clients in order to help because people tend, therapists tend to be people who care about people and they want to, but then they start getting overwhelmed by debt and people stop being therapists because they can't afford to be therapists anymore because it doesn't pay well enough. I imagine that therapists are incentivized to not go through insurance as well since I... It would be my understanding that that an insurance company is is going to put a cap on what they're they're willing to spend and, and sort of had a have a generic like therapy one hour session we pay this much no matter what kind five it is five sessions or this, ten they're yeah. like this is what we cover and the therapist doesn't really get to negotiate they just take it whereas if they're just dealing with clients that can afford therapy regardless of insurance they can charge whatever they want. And, well, so then who ends up, so you're absolutely right. And so what often happens is somebody will take insurance right out of, as soon as they can, build up a caseload, and then realize, and then as soon as they have, they're able to afford it, stop taking insurance. And so it becomes the people who then often need the most intense form of therapy, which are typically the people that don't have as many resources or less privileged, have access to what therapy they have access to are burned out, stressed out new grads, the, the least qualified of the licensed therapist. Um, and so the system, once again, disadvantage, further disadvantages the disadvantaged and further advantages the privilege. Well, yeah, yeah it all makes sense. Uh, yeah, it's depressing. Well, <laughs> it seems like our system in, in so many ways, you know, I mean, this is just one area, but it, it operates in, in other areas as well outside of therapy. Um, something that we've talked all around tonight is um, how, how do we if somebody is a Christian or a spiritual person in some way, um, the integration of psychology and the science of somebody's mind with um, a spiritual reality that they believe in. And um, w one of the examples of this, I think, is is from the Bible, um, because you, you sometimes run into people from the emerging church or more progressive circles taking uh, accounts of Jesus um, driving out demons from people that, that are all over the Gospels. And some scholars and interpreters will look at situations like that in the Scripture, and they will say, well, the, the people in this biblical time, the historic time, they didn't have an understanding of, of science like we do today, like after the scientific age, after the Enlightenment, um, and they certainly didn't have insights into the mind that we, into the brain that we do today, even though, as you stated, like we're, 
maybe on the frontier of understanding the brain. There's still, you know, so much farther we can go. Um, so with Jesus, you know, driving out these, these demons, is this potentially someone who was just dealing with a mental health crisis that Jesus was healing? You know, and people from that time that were writing the Gospels were, you know, somebody from their perspective is acting out of control, maybe is very angry, just rage or, you know, other things are going on. And Jesus driving out a demon was their way of understanding dealing with mental health or trauma. Um, I don't know. How, how do you see some of the, some of that stuff and some of those interpretations and just a larger question of how to integrate, you know, faith and science uh, if if someone is a, a believer? Well, that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> I am um, well, not being a biblical scholar, um, not being and so and also not being a, uh, an expert on particularly the way, um, yeah, mental health would have been conceived of in that time. Um, I can, I'll, I'm speaking more as Paul than as Dr. Hort. I guess I would put that out there um, okay. to say to say that. Um, not the Apostle Paul. Not the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Adjacent, but you know. Just but, Paul from down yeah. the street. Yeah. Yeah, okay. you, yeah you seem a lot nicer than him. <laughs> oh, you just haven't seen me when I'm angry. Um, but, I, I mean, one is that I, I don't know. I mean, and, and I think that's probably the best answer is, is to say, like, we can't, there's no way to be certain. Because um, even... I think there's a there's a deeply culturally embedded aspect to the way we to, to the way mental health even um, mental health issues even present. And so there's there's a reason that we get the kind of mental health issues we do now. And I think some of it has to do with the way we've set up our society, not just um, it's not that we have minds or that are completely distinct from context. Right. The way that we understand and the way that that we present anxiety and stress and the way that um, schizophrenia then presents itself is going to be somewhat culturally embedded the degree to which we don't know we can't we can't say that um, so but i think societies you know throughout history have found ways of, of trying to make sense of behavior that didn't otherwise fit the norm that didn't make sense to them and demons was one way um, so i think i've probably tended to decide to assume that there was you know that did <laughs> If some of those issues existed today, you know, if Jesus were walking around today casting whatever was in the person to a bunch of pigs, um, we probably would have called that schizophrenia. Um, that's probably how we would have understood that. We wouldn't have said that there was demons. We'd, we'd call it schizophrenia. We call it dissociative identity disorder. Um, you know, we, th those are the sorts of terms that we would place on it. Is that exactly what's happening? I don't know. We don't have enough information to even use our current diagnostic criteria looking at them beyond maybe like, mm -hmm. you know, you can tease through it and see if you read some things into the text, which I think might, which is kind of fun, but I don't know that it's actually like diagnostic on a, yeah, on like the, the broader question of like, like you were saying that, that integration question, how do I make sense of, of being not, not a Christian and, um, and also being, you know, have, being in the academy, being, being a psychologist, uh, a therapist, um, is, I don't, I don't see them at war with each other. I don't see them at odds with each other. I don't see these as, as like mutually exclusive things. There's, there's a way that I have a, um, I have an idea of what, I'm, of what I think a mind is. Um, I have an idea of how I think change happens. And then I have an idea of what I think my role is in that. Um, and I try to, and the more that I have dived into what is a mind and how does it work and what's my role in it, the more that that has actually, um, 
messed with, but then I would say in some ways deepened my faith as I think when you when when you deal with science at like the high school level, science equals certainty. And the fun part about I would say getting a PhD is realizing that we actually have no idea what we're doing. And like the more expert you become at something, the more uncertain everything becomes. Um, and I think that's where it gets really fascinating is that like when you finish your dissertation, what you know is that you know nothing about what you just wrote your dissertation on <laughs> and you could write 12 more on there um, because there's so many more questions. There's so much more we don't know. And I think that's part of what's so fascinating. And so I think the the view that is it, you know, is it the Bible or is it <laughs> Freud's writings? Um, it, both of those come from a perspective of these like idea that, that, that there's these certainties that, that well, this is what is true or this is what's true and we're just going to duke it out when the more you dive into both of them I think they find each other in their uncertainty there are people who have found healing going to a church I think there are people who have gone to their pastors and have gone to their faith communities and have found a lot of healing and I see a lot of a big role for faith communities to be a part of helping people's mental health I don't I don't want to say that that's that's that, that shouldn't have nothing to do with it at the same time I think the person that says that's the only place to find healing is is going to be causing a lot of harm. Um, and so it's that reducing is saying it's I mean, it's, it's kind of that that old adage of to the person with a hammer, everything's a nail like to the person with a church, everything is sin and to the person um, who's a therapist, everything's a mental health issue, right? Like we find these things that we think work and it becomes more about our sources of power and what makes us feel like we can have impact in the world. Um, so we map that onto others, I think. I was also in in finding a, a therapist that dealt with religious trauma, I was really, it was really important to me to find one that wasn't a Christian. Cause I, I kind of feel like the likelihood of, uh, you know, you said we never hammer, everything looks like a nail. I feel like if I, if I go to somebody who is a believer that, that can't accept that there could be inherently tra uh, traumatizing things about the experience of, of evangelicalism, especially growing up um, that, that they, it'd be highly likely that whatever I would say, they would be hoping no matter what they'd say, but they'd be hoping that I would find my way back to church, that, that, that was the goal, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I need somebody for whom that is not the goal that, that we can accept that there is inherent trauma in this. And I just want to work on that. I'd say what, what it sparks in me when you say that is I think the, the danger in all therapists, right, is that it may, you're, you know, a therapist's goal may be, I, you know, they, they just need Jesus. That might be one of their goals, and that's probably pretty problematic. But a therapist's goal might also be, well, they need to get Jesus out of there. And that is also problematic. I think an important part of becoming a therapist is recognizing, what is my goal? What is it that, what is my vision of health that I'm actually trying to move my clients towards? And is that their vision of health? And then what do I do when those are at odds? Yeah. And am I open to hearing what my client actually needs? Because there's there's so many clients. I would say that, like, in my experience, that I'm, in some ways, I, you know, I end the session. I feel like did I just talk them out of church? I'm pretty sure I did, um, because it felt like, in my, you know, in that, those moments, that they were trying to just shut things down by going back to church and convince themselves that their old habits are gonna are gonna heal them, and they just need to pray harder and do more, and. and Maybe going back to these things that are killing you are bad ideas. Um, and so I think it's really important to like actually pause and think, what am I moving people towards? Um, because a lot of times that has more to do with me um, than it does with them. And I think as therapists, we have a really bad habit. And 
therapist dirty little secrets here. A lot of therapists <laughs> um, are therapists because they experienced a lot of harm and they found a lot of healing and they want to go pay it forward. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's wonderful. Um, I imagine a lot time, of therapists are also therapists because they saw what about Bob? Uh, that may be it. I, yeah, that probably scared more people. I'd say Goodwill Hunting was more. We they wanted to have that moment. I, I wanted I wanted to know like if there's certain ones that like because I'm always interested in like movies that are like about a vocation, and you you talk to people that are actually in the vocation like that movie sucks. That is that is nothing like my experience. And obviously, what about Bob is not a super accurate representation, yeah. but it strikes me as probably something that a lot of therapists actually really like. Do you know I mean, if that's a I popular movie? movie. Yeah. I enjoy What About Bob quite a bit, and yeah. it gives me nightmares. I'll say that. Like, <laughs> like, that's the sort of like, no. You don't come away from it going like, boy, I really wish they'd actually published that book, Baby Steps. I would love to read that. <laughs> no. No. No, I don't. No. All-time all classic. Um well, you have been uh, so generous with your time, and we uh, just so greatly appreciate you coming on the show. Um, it's great to introduce you to Zach. Um, and uh, maybe before you go, so you, you and your family moved up here from Kansas. What are what are the you know? Do you have like a top three things that you really love about the greater Seattle area, uh, having moved Seattle. up here from Kansas? Oh, definitely the neighbors. I would just say neighbors. Oh, nice. Far, okay. Far away. All right. I, I got some points. I got some points on my own show. I will oh. warn you, though. Sometimes you have a neighbor, maybe not like just down the street, but in the general vicinity, and you're getting to know them. You're going to movies together, and then they just like move like maybe across the water. Oh. Um, so I just, I just say, here. I'd Is say, you need to talk about sex. You may need to temper. <laughs> That enthusiasm a bit. <laughs> uh, no, um, actually, anecdotally, I would say like people when I moved up here, everyone warned me about the Seattle freeze, and they said, uh, "People, you know, just be warned." Coming from the Midwest, I actually found and this may just be that people in Kansas don't like me, but that like I found my move to Seattle far more welcoming um, and far easier to to get to get to know people and to than I ever did in, in Kansas. Um, that's just nice my experience. You. But I think that was contrary to what I was warned. And maybe it's just that my expectations were so low that anything was higher. Whereas in Kansas, I think I was expecting a little bit more of the like Midwest nice uh, than I experienced <laughs> moving there. But no, I mean, I still, I, I mean, I take the ferry to work uh, once or twice a week um, and I just absolutely love it. I love, um, I love the water. I love the beauty around here. I think you can't talk about the Pacific Northwest yeah, without the, talking about The view from the levels. city from the ferry is, uh, is classic. Yeah, going just, into Seattle. Well, and you, and you get those days where you get like the Cascades outlining it in the back, and then the city line right in front of it. It's, I just, I just absolutely love that, and I love the weather here. Um, it's, it's great. Even in the, even in the winter, it wasn't too bad. Now let's see if I say that four years on, well, if I'm still saying that. But at this point, I would say those are some of my favorite things here, for sure. Cool. Well, um. Yeah, stick around. Get you know you can come back on in four or five years and give us that update. Then give you an update on the weather. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've been rained out. <laughs> and mentioning movies, maybe uh, we'll have to um, take a ferry and meet up with Zach and maybe maybe catch a movie so we can we can write write some wrongs that I did by moving over where I'm at. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was just no. talking about just, you know, it, it may have been you, but it could, it could have been any neighbor, really. Um, we don't want to move into cheap forgiveness here, Dave. So let's oh, oh, that's, that we're just yeah, whitewashing okay. over and trying to undo something. Yeah, something's just ah, working these, through these here, call backs and circling back around. Look at this show. <laughs> you bring on a therapist. That's what we do. Like, right? <laughs> he, he listens well. <laughs> Well, um, where can where can people find you on the internet if they want to track you down and uh, see see never, more of what nowhere. you're about? Um, nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. Uh, I mean, at this point, I mean, I'm a I'm a practicing therapist, so I have a page for my my private practice site. Um, then I think you can Google and find me on like Psychology Today. I'm I'm listed and and I think it somewhat gets updated at the school when I publish and when I do different things there. Otherwise, I have a Twitter presence. I think it's at Horde Paul, but I almost never tweet anything. Um, I don't know that I've ever tweeted anything original. I'm, I'm a retweeter if I do anything. So I'm not very interesting on the internet. Um, probably the best way is through the school and my connections there. Cool. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, it's been it's been great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Dave, do I have to invite a neighbor next? Is that is that is this a passive aggressive uh, move where now the ball's in my court because I'm not sure if any of my neighbors would be nearly as interesting as Paul <laughs> you never know you never know oh well yeah it was it was good having uh, Dr. Paul Horde my neighbor on our, our sons are good friends they hang out and play together all the time and uh, Seattle School of Theology and Psychology I guess if you're looking to do further education in either of those areas um, you got a bit of a flavor of what the school's like at least one professor from one professor so um yeah that's across the water from me the school is located in a really cool place kind of down by the piers near the water the puget sound down there that's kind of a, oh, kind of a oh. great location okay yeah yeah with all that being said, this has been another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Thank you so much for listening to us. If uh, you enjoyed this podcast episode, please leave us a rating and a review where you like to get podcasts as that helps other people find our show. You can also go to etsy.com slash vcwhall and you can get some show merchandise if you want to support uh, the show or um, you just want like a coffee mug or a shirt or something. On Twitter, at vcwpod. And I am at Dave J. Lester. Zach is at Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H. And you should go check out his website, muzak.bandcamp.com. Christmas is coming up. I believe he still has some vinyl Christmas records that you can order and he can send your way. Uh, it's, a, it's a good record, so you should check that out. It is, we're recording this September 26th, so you still have some time before Christmas to get that record and put it on to help get in the Christmas spirit and that good stuff. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on down to the BCW. And remember, as always, the podcast is free, but you still need to tithe 10%.